John chapter 12, verse 30, I'll start in verse 36, the first half. It says that when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this first uh, section in John chapter 12, this section, the next section we're going to go through, verse 43. John, keep in mind, John's writing this book after Jesus had uh, lived, died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, right? He's writing it after the fact. And so John, a lot of times, and a lot of the gospel writers will give these little They'll kind of set up the story. They'll kind of set up the text a little bit and kind of give us some added commentary on what's going on. And they're doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit as he's inspiring them to write these things. And I, uh, I, as I was studying this week, was blown away by the nuance and just how God used John to just give us these little Easter eggs, which are really cool in regards to these passages. And we'll get into them a little bit. But what's going on is Jesus is really closing out his ministry in regards to his public ministry. We're going to see today the last kind of message that Jesus speaks publicly is spoken today. And John is kind of setting up this idea that although Jesus has displayed so many things, he's done so many miracles, and although he has spoken these profound ideas and he's he's rocking what people understand about the Messiah and all of these things, although all of that took place, Many people still did not trust him and believe in him. And so John is quoting Isaiah chapter 53 in regards to what's going on here. He's communicating Jesus' words, right? He's saying he spoke a lot of things, he did a lot of things, he was proclaiming and demonstrating who he was and they still didn't believe. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1, which is a very unique chapter to quote. I'm going to read it. It says in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1, he says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53 is an interesting verse because it is one of the most explicit verses, chapters, and prophecies about the Messiah. It was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. And this is the verse that John chose to use as a proof text to say of the Messiah. What's interesting is that Isaiah, the whole book, was ultimately written to the the northern kingdom, to Judea, as they were observing the southern kingdom. Um, Actually, I think I flipped those around, but as to Judea, as Israel has been taken captive. They're starting to be taken captive, and, and God wrote used Isaiah to write to them and say, listen, this is coming for you. Like, repent, repent, repent. That was the context for Isaiah chapter, uh, not just Isaiah chapter 53, but the whole book. God was speaking and revealing himself, and Israel still chose to not believe. I think it's interesting, because often I hear, well, you know, if God would just reveal himself, if God would just show me a sign, if God would just... But open the heavens and proclaim 
who he was. If, if God would just do something miraculous, then, then I would know. Then I would believe. And what's so fascinating to me that the people that Isaiah is writing to and the people that John's writing to had that happen. They saw the miraculous. The presence of God in Isaiah's time dwelt on earth in a temple, in a building, and there was like signs and wonders. They were doing miraculous things. God was doing crazy things through prophets. Like it was a gnarly time, and they were seeing all of the stuff that today we wish we saw, and they still didn't trust God. They still didn't believe. In fact, not only that, they ran after idols that were worthless, that weren't doing anything miraculous. Like there was, I mean, I just think of the story of, of um, oh man, what's the prophet that uh, dropped the water? Yeah, Elijah, right? Yeah. Poured water all over the sacrifice. Fire came down from heaven. The whole thing was consumed. And he's like literally talking trash. It's like, maybe he's like on, get on a lunch break. Maybe your God's like going to the bathroom. Like he's literally saying all this stuff, and God's doing this miraculous stuff, and they're like, yeah, we still want Baal after all of that, right? This is the context of what Isaiah is going. But what's more fascinating is that John chose to use Isaiah chapter 53 as this idea of what has been revealed. I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read most of it. Verse two. For he, talking about this Messiah to come, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should uh, look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid them, their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. <clears throat> and with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before his shears were silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considers that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him and he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in this land. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And his knowledge shall be righteous one, my servant. Made many, he made many accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion among many. And he shall divide the spoil of the strong. Because he was poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. It made intercessions for the transgressors. This is beautiful. But here's what's so fascinating. As the people are longing for signs, as they're longing for wonders, as they're longing to have their minds blown, as they're wanting some proof that this is the Messiah, John refers to a text talking about the Messiah dying. It's almost as though John is saying, 
The cross is the greatest sign of God's mercy and justice. It's the cross is the greatest sign. It's the the thing where God is revealed most clearly. It's the greatest demonstration of God's power. It's the greatest demonstration of God's grace. It's the cross. You're looking for these miraculous things, but I'm gonna tell you the cross is where justice and mercy meet. It's profound and it's beautiful. And John, the author, is drawing our attention to Jesus and his sacrifice. And he's doing it before, chronologically in the book, Jesus actually dies, but John is writing in hindsight. He's bringing our attention to that. Jesus' death is the pinnacle of the gospel, right? It's not just only the gospel. The gospel is ultimately a story of God pursuing and redeeming humanity, and it's culminated in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. It's part of the, it's the pinnacle of the story. And so he says that although this was going on, they did not believe. But then John moves it up to 11 here in John chapter 39, and he says, therefore, they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So he goes from they did not believe that they could not believe. And then again, John quotes Isaiah. This time he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, which says this, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. I know this is a hard thing to hear. This is a pretty tough text right here. Because what's going on? It, it seems as though he's saying he is blinded, he is hardened, lest they see and understand. Is God purpose, purposely letting people not come and see him and not come and know him? Is that what's going on here? There's a couple of things we need to look at and understand first. First, in Isaiah chapter 6, let's look at the audience. John is speaking again to Israel. He is speaking to the southern kingdom, Judah. And he is speaking to the religious leaders that have continued to reject God. And continued to reject after all of the signs, after all of the crazy stuff that's going on, there was this deep devotion to their idols. That's the audience of this text. And what he's saying is like, you keep on hearing, you keep on, keep on doing what you're doing, essentially. Keep on going. That's what Isaiah was saying to these people. He, he, was, he was proclaiming after being called by God to speak this, that listen, keep on doing what you're doing. It's gonna end you, right? But here's what's the key to the text. We wanna look at not only the audience, but we wanna look at the initiator. In Isaiah, which is fascinating, the people and the leaders are the initiators of the blindness of the deafness, and of the dull heart. Yet in John, he implies that it is God that is initiating the blindness, the lack of hearing, and the hardening of heart. So which is it? Is the Israelites the initiator? Are we the initiator? Is God the initiator? 
And I would say that the answer is yes. The answer is yes. This is why I just love John's nuance here. The key to this text, really, is John's use of the word harden in the book of John. If you look at it, he is saying that God hardened their heart. That he had blinded their eyes, he hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and they turn. But he's quoting Isaiah chapter 16, 610. But what Isaiah said was he used the word fat or dull heart, not hardened. He used the word fat. They had a fat heart. What that means was is there was this unhealthiness. There was this greasiness. There was this laziness, right? It was this idea that their heart had become just like almost like they don't want to do anything. Like they weren't seeking after God. They weren't challenging their soul. Like there was nothing going on. They just become lazy in heart. And then John, the word for hardening there, he uses the word callous. Callous. What's a callous, right? It's complete wear. Keep going. Eventually, a hardness forms, right? It's a hardness that forms after repeated use in the same area. And so what we see is this idea that Israel and humanity often is if in this constant state of rebellion and pushing God away and pushing God away and, and their heart not seeking after God and not seeking after God, God in his goodness and grace honors that and calluses and says, okay, like you're rejecting, 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 like I'm gonna just like let you have that. And there's a callus that forms, there's a hardness that forms. We see the same thing with Moses and Pharaoh and it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and then Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and then it says and God solidified hardened his heart. It's actually a different word for hardened. He solidified it. Right? And so what we see, and here's the thing, some will say, well, well is it, is it our, all of us? Or others might say, well, it's all God doing this thing. And I would say, who knows? Who knows where my will ends and God's determination sets in? The key is, is where are you at? Where is our heart at? Where am I at in regards to my pursuit of God? Because at the end of the day, there is a mystery in regards to how God works. We have his word that shows us a lot of things, but where that that line is at, we do not know. But I find it fascinating that God is good in regards to allowing us to be in the space that we want to be in. He's never going to force us to follow him. He's never going to force us to believe in him. He's never going to force us to do anything. He is going to allow us to run hard and wherever we're going, and he is going to pursue us because he loves us, and he's going to do everything in his power to reveal his glory to us, and often we're going to see in a little bit that when we see that glory, it has a profound effect, and sometimes it's something that we can't help but notice. But John is drawing the attention to the reader that God is actively pursuing humanity, but at the same time, he's honoring and solidifying humans' hearts. Now, where do we want to this shouldn't bring fear. Like, oh man, maybe I've rib- I, I, maybe my heart's cow. Like, if you're even thinking that, it shows that God is still at work, right? And here's another thing. We never know where someone's at. We never know where we're at. I'm sure Paul, as or Saul at the time, as he's 
rocking down to go imprison and kill Christians, didn't expect to run into the glory of God on the road, have his eyes blind and have his world rocked, and fully come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and become one of the greatest apostles and wrote most of our New Testament. I don't think he expected that when he was going to cause trauma and abuse to the Christians. But God knocked him off his high horse and changed his life. And he can do the same for you and for me and the person you're thinking of right now that you love dearly. We don't have to be afraid of this because God is in control and he is the one that is pursuing and changing hearts. But at the end of the day, God isn't going to force anybody to follow. He's going to let us stay in that space. And so as we continue on, Jesus gives his final sermon publicly, at least in the book of John, verse 44. It says, and Jesus cried out and he said, whoever believes in me believes not in Uh, me but in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me and I have come into the world is light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness if anyone hears my words and does not keep them I do not judge him for I did not come to the uh, come to judge the world but to save the world the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge the word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and what, is, uh, and what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandments, I know his command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so we have Jesus crying out, right? The word cry out, he's shouting out, he's, he's proclaiming. And, and this sermon really, he said this a lot of other times, it's almost like a, a culmination of all the things that he's proclaimed, right? He's saying, but what, what is above and beyond clear in this last thing is the oneness with the Father, Son, and Spirit. He says things like, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And, and you're, if you're hearing me, you're hearing what the Father has said. Like, I am speaking on behalf of the Father. If you trust me, you're trusting the Father. Like, we are one. He is making it abundantly clear. And he's coming also saying, like, I didn't come to judge, right? I came, ultimately he comes to be judged, but he's like, I'm not gonna judge these things. I'm gonna proclaim who I am, and if you don't wanna believe in me, like those words, you'll remember those on that last day. Oh my goodness, Jesus said this stuff. If you believe me and obey my words, I do not judge you, he says. The words that I speak are from God. He is commanding me what to say. I always love these little statements about, that Jesus makes because I run to a lot of people um, who are okay with Jesus, but they don't like believe in him, right? They're just like, Jesus is a good guy. Like, he's a good prophet. I'm like, he says some crazy stuff, okay? He says, like, I speak on behalf of God. I'm the only way to the Father. Like, unless you come through me, you're not going to get in. Like, he said some pretty exclusive, specific things, and I, I find it interesting that often if, if we really like look at what Jesus said, like we have to either, yeah, accept what he said or we have to reject it because there's no like easy space to go, you know what, like he's just a good dude. I'm like, if he's not who he says he is, he's nuts. Like C.S. Lewis said, right? Either he's crazy or he's a liar or he's Lord, right? So like I love that John puts little pieces like that, all the gospel writers do. But one of the things I want to draw our attention to is he says, for um, my father, his father has given me commandments and what I say and what I speak, and I know that his commandments is eternal life. What are some of these commandments, right? 
What are some of the things that Jesus said that's eternal life? I think the big ones, especially through John, John is very explicit. John 5, 24, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, is passed from death to life. Throughout John and the Gospels, we have Jesus proclaiming who he is, what he's come to do, and calling people to trust him. And at the end of the day, that is the commandment. But we see, in that, we see it throughout there. We see in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. And you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's radical, right? He's saying, yeah, I, I know you got your scriptures. And I know you have a memorized Pharisees. I know that you have it all dialed in. But these scriptures, they testify of me. And you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Because you think that it's in this, 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 these scriptures that you have life. And I think that is something that I see so often even today. It is easy for us to spend our, all our hours studying the Bible, but if we're missing Jesus, we're missing the whole point of it. We can have this whole thing memorized, and if we're not willing to come to the one that is written about that we might have life, then it doesn't matter. I mean, I think of Jesus, I said, on that last day, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't I read every day for four hours? Like, and he's like, I don't even know you. Right? Like, these are they that testify of me, and we must come to him that we might have life. What is another thing that Jesus said? John chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father. This is his will. This is what he wants. This is his desire. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's God's desire, that we look to Jesus, that we might have life. And the last one, John 17, 3, which has, we'll get to later, but it's still an awesome verse. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Eternal life is relational. It's knowing, like knowing, not knowing about, knowing God in Jesus. Like that is this life that Jesus came to give us. Okay? I think often it's communicated or maybe believed that it's this idea that once we die, we're on like clouds, we've got a harp, and we're just going to like, I don't know, a lot of harp playing, rocking in heaven. Yeah, there's maybe aspects of being in heaven, right? But eternal life begins now because it involves knowing God now. Like the life that God offers us begins now as he comes and lives in those that are following after him, those that have trusted Jesus. His spirit lives within us. We're able to know him and be in relationship with him. And that continues on, not just through this life, but into the next. It's a continuation of the abundant life that Jesus came to give. And so as all this is going on, we see that the outcome was that many believed, but there was a fear, as we're kind of going back a little bit in the text, there was a fear of being rejected by the culture that caused these people that were believing him to reject essentially Jesus, right? He said, nevertheless, you know, many believed, but many of the authorities believed, but after fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. For they would... They did not want to be put out of the synagogue. And this line right here gets me every time. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They didn't want to be put out of the culture. They didn't want to be put out of their, their society. They loved the glory that came from each other rather than the glory that comes from God. 
they were seen and valued in their culture, they had a place in their culture, and they feared that if they trusted Jesus as the Messiah, they would lose that. That was more important to them than God's value, God's perception of them, and God's glory. And I think it's easy, right, from this perspective to go, well, you know, I get it, right? In that time, there were the only, like, synagogues where you had your Jewish community. That was the only place you had relationship. It was in the synagogue that you had your friendships, your relationships. That's where your family was at. And I get it. I get that. Like, for them to then say, no, the Messiah has actually come, it's Jesus. Knowing that if I proclaim that, and if I trust that, then I'm not going to be allowed back in this space. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to lose everything. I think that it's easy for me to be critical from this perspective of, of course, why wouldn't you just choose God, when the risk of following Jesus, even at this time, was very, very great. And I would say that today it's very, very great. We never want to take it lightly, the risk that people have to follow Jesus, whether it be in this country or others. In some, it implies death. For others, it involves isolation. But we see that John here is being so brilliant. We're going to see that, that he's calling people to say that The glory of God is far greater. The goodness of God is far greater. What Jesus offers is far greater. And yes, it's going to cost. The reason why I keep bringing this idea up of what John and his nuance is, is that John is quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And he gives us a hint of where he's getting at in John chapter 12, verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is John talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a powerful passage. Isaiah sees God. But what's interesting is, is I love how this passage starts. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. Who was Uzziah? He was the king. And what's crazy about Uzziah is he started off so good, so good. But it says one of the saddest quotes about a good king you're ever going to hear is that he goes, he was marvelously helped until he was strong. And he became arrogant 
as a king, so arrogant that he went into the temple one day with a censer, which was something that only the priest should do, only high priest should go into the temple most of the time, and even in the area that he went, it only could be the Levite priest, right? And he goes in with the censer thinking, I'm the king, I should be able to go before God however I want, and he races in there, and the priests are going like, don't do it, and he does it anyway, and God stripes him with leprosy, and he never repents, and he dies a leper all his days. He was a leper. He was arrogant. And Isaiah goes, listen, when that guy died, when that glory hog died, I saw the real king. I saw the king on his throne, standing in all of his glory. He said there was seraphim. They had wings covering their face and their feet, and they were flying, and they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. He said the place was filled with smoke, and the whole earth was shaking, and his the, his, the robe, the train of his robe filled it like this magnificent, beautiful, glorious scene of God's glory. And what does Isaiah say? He goes, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For I have seen the king. John uses one of the most prolific passages about the glory of God to bring the reader back and saying this is the glory that they're rejecting. The glory that comes from each other was more important than this glory. Like talk about contrast. Talk about contrast. I love Isaiah's response. Woe is me. Isaiah beholds the beauty and the majesty and the power of God in such a radical way that it exposes his deep need, his deep lack. The more he sees the true king, the more he sees his deep need, the more he sees his deep lack, his brokenness, everything else. And that is normal, and that is good. I think the more we see Jesus, the more we know Jesus, the more we're going to see our lack the more we're going to see our need, the more we're going to see the areas that we struggle in. And that is okay. It's not that God's pointing that out and saying, look how terrible you are. He's saying, I'm going to make you more like my son. I'm doing this work in you. Like, he's exposing what's crazy to me is how he shows me something in my heart. And then I'm like, how long has that been there? Years, right? Years. And I'm like, Lord, and then my mind starts recounting all the ways that God used me or how long different ministry aspects I'm doing. And I'm like, I was doing all of that with this gross thing just chilling in there and he's like yeah because it's not about you man it's about me right like God in his goodness is revealing himself to us and as he does he shows us ourselves not that we get bummed out and get depressed but that we go thank you Lord that you're changing me you're giving me new desires that you're making me more like your son and I think that this text really even shows God's heart because look what happens next verse 6 of Isaiah 6. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What happened? He purified him. But here's what's interesting. Everywhere you read in the Old Testament, everywhere, whenever it's talking about anything in the temple, the idea is, is that if 
that you need to be ceremonially clean to go into the temple because if you're not ceremonially clean, anything you touch, if you touch another person or something else, it defiles that space. That sin, corruption, brokenness, whatever it may be, defiles the space. It contaminates. But here, we see that the coal taken from the fire comes and this, this, the clean coal from the sacrifice where all these sacrifices being burnt, that clean thing comes and actually cleans the contaminated thing. We have preview of coming attractions. John is being very clear of what's going on. He's pointing us to Jesus. And that's why John in chapter 41 says, talking about Isaiah, he has seen him, Jesus. He's seen the king on the throne. He saw his glory. The great and majestic king left his throne to be a human like you and I. That great and majestic king came and he lived in the human existence, lived as a human being, living the life that you and I are not able to live to perfection. He did it with perfection. And the great and mighty king died. And when he died, God's glory was seen as well. The glory of God was seen in Jesus' death. That great and mighty king died only to be raised up again and to sit back on that throne. He's on the throne still. But not only that, like the sacrifice that purified Isaiah's mouth, so our king's sacrifice purifies us as well. That we too can be made clean. Our guilt can be removed. Our shame was placed on Jesus as we read in Isaiah 53. The iniquities of all were laid on him. He took them. He died for them so that we might be made clean, so that we can be with God, so we can be accepted and loved by the Father. And then, if we were to finish out the thing, Isaiah was called then into service. He said, who shall I send? And he said, send me. And as he says, send me, God says, well, proclaim this thing. And he proclaims the verse that we first read, and that is, lest they hear with their eyes, like hear with their ears and see with their eyes, and I turn to them. Let me just close out with this. The religious leaders preferred the glory they get from each other more than this glory. The contrast, I think, is startling. But I think what's even more important is that we are always coming back to the space that Jesus is the better king. And he came to reveal the goodness and glory of God to us. And he still does that. And we need to be reminded of God's glory. We need to be reminded of this good God. Because sometimes it's easy, like these people, to say this other thing over here, this idol over here, these things over here are more lovely, more beautiful, more good, more satisfying. And he's the only one that can ultimately satisfy our soul. And I think that with the idea of seeing God as beautiful more and awesome and glorious and lovely, it has a profound changing effect on us. As we're reminded, we're changed, just as Isaiah was changed. And that should be our heart and our desire. Lord, I want to see more of you. Because when I do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change me. It's going to make me more like your son. And when we see our deep need, know that you have a generous God wanting to fill that deep need. When you see your deep lack, you have a good and gracious God that wants to fill that. And when you see your brokenness, we have a good and gracious God that wants to heal that. And only he can do that.
So with that, let's close with a couple more songs. We have communion elements available up here.